Good evening, amen. It wasn't so long ago that as an intern in my residency in New Hampshire, I was starting my night float rotation. And my first night on night float, I arrived in the resident workroom. And the first fellow intern signed out his team to me. And he said, okay, here's the people I think you need to worry about. Here's the people that are going to be fine overnight. And as a PS, here's my pager. And then the second intern signed out her team to me. Same routine. And one, two, three, four. I had four pagers on my belt. And I sat down with all of their handouts in front of me and lined them up on the desk. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. Um, It's one of those sort of moments when you realize that after four years of study in medical school, you still don't really know that much. (laughs) And around about 7 o'clock after the change of shift, the pages would start to come in, one after another. Sometimes we refer to it as interns as being hammer-paged. Uh, It's when one page after another just hits you and and you're trying to triage well as balancing this person's potassium more important or do I need to worry about this constipation or, or, or what's happening. But there was another pager that I was given each night on night float. And that pager was the one that really would get my heart rate going. And that was called the code pager. And in addition to covering all the inpatient teams uh, at my hospital, uh, I was responsible to report to a code as soon as that pager would go off. And there was a sense of uh, ironic humor, I suppose, that the hospital tested that pager at 7 p.m. and at 7 a.m., just after I started night float and just before I finished night float. And without fail that pager would really get my heart rate going. Um, One of the words of advice that a more senior resident gave me that I held on to during those nights was, John, if you're paged to a code, and for those of you who may not know, a code is what we refer to when somebody's heart stops. They're not responding. And it's the signal for us to evaluate the patient fast and begin CPR if necessary. He said, John, if you're called to a code, there's one thing I want you to remember. When you arrive at the bed, the first thing to do is check your own pulse. (laughs) And there's a logic to that. If you're so panicked when you get to the bedside, you're not going to be able to think clearly. And the one thing that matters more than starting chest compressions soon is being able to think clearly and ask the right people to help you. So in that spirit, as I sat here tonight, I checked my pulse. (laughs) It's 90. (laughs) Now, part of that is that I'm out of shape. But I suppose that as I'm on the tail end of a cold and I'm sweating up here in my brother's suit, I probably meet sepsis criteria as well. (laughs) 
but I'd encourage all of you to check your pulse tonight. We need vital signs. We need a sense of where we are in this time in Earth's history. And to that end, I'd like to place a call, a page, to the Master Physician that he would impress on each of your hearts tonight what your vital signs are like, what your pulse is, where's your heart, and that he would convince you and convict you of the necessity in these times of radical practice, healing in the 11th hour. And that reminds me, before I pray, that the only slide of my PowerPoint is right in front of you. (laughs) Radical practice, healing in the 11th hour. It's actually not my slide, but it's nicely designed, and I wish it was my slide. (laughs) But I encourage you to think about that as I speak. Let's pray. Loving Father, I'm an intern standing before a whole room full of experienced clinicians. Lord, who am I, the least of all my father's house, to bring this message to your people? And yet, my weakness commends your strength. And I pray that your spirit would fill this room tonight, bless our hearts and our minds, that we might have the focus to fasten our attention on you. And having fastened our attention on you and your character, we might be transformed into your image. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I love amen. I've come three years as a medical student, and I'm very grateful for the gift that the AMEN members provide to medical students and dental students to come here free of charge. It's wonderful to see all of the medical students from my home institution, Loma Linda. There's many of you here, and dental students as well. And I'm encouraged by your testimonies tonight. I was also encouraged when I was talking to Bogdan, a second-year medical student from Romania today. He described how he kept the Sabbath when Sabbath-keeping is not the default in Romania. I was encouraged last night by Dr. Guthrie's presentation on free radicals in practice, particularly his story at the end of his presentation. And I was encouraged this morning to participate in Dr. Schwartz's morning prayer rounds. I encourage all of you to come, if possible, tomorrow morning. And again this morning during morning devotionals, but I confess that after morning devotionals, I retired to my room to study and to pray. I didn't attend any more of the meetings today besides the meeting for lunch. I prayed and studied and prayed some more. And as I looked out over the view from the the veranda in our room, I could see the golf course that's adjacent to this whole facility. It's huge. 
and it's quite beautiful. It's green, and there's perfectly formed hills that stretch as far as I could see in both directions. And I thought about that golf course, and I wondered if that golf course is not emblematic in some respects of Palm Springs and in some respects of our whole experience here in Palm Springs or perhaps America or perhaps the West. And what I mean is that the golf course stretches as far as we can see from here. But if you were to get into a car and drive just 10 minutes north, 10 minutes west, 10 minutes east, or 10 minutes south, the greenness of the golf course would quickly evaporate into dry and dusty sand. In some senses, it's a promise of beauty and fulfillment that doesn't pan out if you go for any distance from its epicenter. I'm afraid that we could have a whole conference on radical practice here at Palm Springs and leave and return to our work, to our large and fancy homes, our high-paying salaries, our nice cars, and forget that outside of Palm Springs and the worlds like it that we happen to live in, there's another sort of a world, a suffering world, a world that is growing dark. The orthopedic surgeon Semer Attar wrote a perspective piece for the New England Journal of Medicine just earlier this year. It was titled, The Hell of Syria's Field Hospitals. To put us in perspective about what I'm talking about with suffering in the world, I'd like to read an excerpt from this piece. He's describing some of the patients he saw at that time. When a father, he writes, whose five-year-old son was shot in the head by a sniper asks, who would kill an innocent boy? Why didn't he just shoot me instead? How do we respond? What do we tell the family whose daughter died, coughing and choking on her own blood? The bleeding wouldn't stop. The blood pooled on the floor. No matter how many lines and tubes we placed, we couldn't save her. How do we console the father whose 13-year-old son's skull was blown open above his right ear? When I saw the boy, his exposed brain was covered with gauze. His eyes were swollen shut. He winced and grimaced now and then in response to pain, but he did not last very long. How do we care for the 70-year-old grandmother who presented with her abdomen lacerated open, her left foot amputated, and her right leg crushed? How is she expected to survive? On a recent visit to a border hospital in Jordan, I entered one room that held two little girls with traumatic brain injury from shrapnel and concussive bomb blasts. They sat with expressionless faces, vacant eyes, and contracted limbs. How do we console the parents who asked why this had happened to them and whether their children would return to talking, playing, and laughing? 
Next door were three young siblings who'd been severely burned when a rocket hit their home. Two of them required amputations. All three were scarred for life. One morning, I saw a mother carrying her son into the hospital. They had just survived an airstrike. They were covered in blood and caked in gray dust. The son was bleeding from a torn artery in his left arm. His life and his limb were saved by blood transfusions and emergency surgery. The mother said that she'd been holding two of her sons before the bomb landed. The other one had died in her arms. She'd felt his intestines in her hands from an open wound in his abdomen. He wasn't moving. She had to let go of him in order to save her other son. I hope that takes us far away from Palm Springs for just a moment, puts us in the mood for what the world is really like outside of this oasis, puts us in perspective to the fact that the world is growing dark around us. What do we do indeed when we look at the world's suffering? What is our response to Surgeon Samer Attar? and to the patients that he faced. What do we tell our patients here in the United States or elsewhere when they suffer? And what do we tell ourselves? There's probably three solutions, three anyways that I know of to the problem of suffering. One is to say that God exists and that he's a God of love and that he suffers alongside of us. Furthermore, he has a plan to change the suffering one day to a land and a place that suffering will be no more. That's the opinion that I hold to. The second is to say that God does exist, but he doesn't care, or he doesn't love those who suffer. And the third is to say that that opinion of God is so very objectionable that we'd be much better off not to believe in God at all. This opinion is held by the atheists, many of whom I work with in New Hampshire. In Syria and other parts of the Middle East, the rise of ISIS has caused us in the West to ask many deep existential questions, but perhaps none is more pointed than the question that comes to us as we consider why is it that university-trained students from Western nations, such as Western Europe, Canada, and America, have been radicalized to go and serve as part of a culture that is perpetuating this horror. What is behind ISIS and the process of radicalization? In the spirit of a conference that's dedicated to the word radical, at least in part, it might be well for us to perform a root cause analysis. First, though, we'd need to understand what we mean by radical. 
This has already been well established by Dr. Guthrie and others subsequently, and I don't want to hammer the point, but I do want to add this perspective. A radical, in my opinion, is a person, a man or a woman, who is actuated by core beliefs, roots, if you will, that are embedded in a belief about something or someone larger than themselves. A radical is someone who's actuated by core beliefs or roots that are embedded in the bedrock of something or someone that is larger than themselves. I mentioned the atheist position. Richard Dawkins, one of the foremost in their camp, approaches the question of suffering in the world and describes God in this way. He says, begin quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. Who would be a radical? Communists would be radicals. They believed in a utopia that was bigger than themselves, and millions of them over the past century have passed away to prove that point. Jihadists are radicals. They also believe in something bigger than themselves, something worth dying for. Atheists are not radicals. There's nothing bigger than themselves. But Richard Dawkins, I believe, is a radical. The way he describes God, the detail he invests in his character, belies a belief in that God. What is behind this radicalization? If we were to conduct a root cause analysis in terms of radical as I've just defined it, I think we would find that these young men and women coming from the West and entering into the spirit and culture of ISIS are actuated by two principles. Number one, the void created by atheism, an existential void that removes a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose is absolutely unacceptable. They behold the golf courses of Palm Springs and they say, no. There's no meaning in that sort of a life. I want to live a life that is actuated by purpose. Principle one, the void is unacceptable. And then principle two, an understanding of God that is fundamentally different. They believe that God loves those who obey his will and hates those who don't. We are well, I believe, to be horrified at what's happening in Syria. To be horrified at what Richard Dawkins says about God. But 
our horror is misdirected. Too often our horror is directed at ISIS, at Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or any of the other new atheists. Instead, our horror should be self-directed. For we as a generation have not yet demonstrated to the world the true loving character of God. Ellen White in Christ Object Lessons, page 69, says, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Can you imagine God beholding what's happening in Syria right now? Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. And when we look with horror at what's happening as a result of a misperception of God's character, we would do well to take a careful look in the mirror. The darkness is deepening. Can you see the need for light If so, how do we go about it? What are we to do as a people, as individuals, when we return from this weekend? What are we to do? Should we try harder? It's been tried before, and it hasn't worked. You know, I'm reminded as we wrestle with this problem, of patients who present diagnostic dilemmas. They don't fit neatly into one of our boxes. There's things about their story that just don't ring true. These sort of patients, I found that the story is worth a thousand lab tests. Tonight, I'd like to share some stories with you, and I pray that the Spirit would guide your hearts and minds to understand the diagnosis for our people, for our patients, for each of us individually. My first story begins in the year 1725. A baby was born named John Newton. John was born to a seafaring father and a God-fearing mother. His mother taught him the catechism, which he learned by heart, and not a few of the hymns of Isaac Watts, which he would remember for the rest of his life. But two weeks before his seventh birthday, his mother died. She had been coughing, and the doctors told his grief-stricken father and John that it was consumption, a process we call tuberculosis. John was shipped off to boarding school where his fickleness and laziness as a student made two years of boarding school hell, both, I suspect, for him and his teachers. It wasn't until he was 11 that he convinced his father to let him come with him on a sailing ship. As the captain's son, I suspect that these traits of laziness were only aided and abetted, protected perhaps, 
from the rigors of sea that other men in those times would have um, been chiseled away. When he was 18 years old, he returned from one of his father's sailing voyages and was visiting friends and relatives in London. He was captured and impressed into the Royal Navy at the age of 18 on that visit. It was 68 years before another young man, an American named Joseph Bates, would be impressed into the Royal Navy by much the same mechanism. John Newton was not a fan, you might say, of the Royal Navy. And at the first opportunity, when the ship came to port, he walked off the ship, intending to never come back. Unfortunately for him, the captain caught wind of this and did bring him back. But he didn't only bring him back. He brought him back, stripped off his shirt, lashed him to the metal grating of the ship, and in front of 350 of his crew members, administered 96 lashes, eight dozen lashes. It's a miracle, really, when you think of the bacteria that live on a ship in those times that he even survived. But survive he did. Unfortunately, as often is the case, the psychological wounds lasted longer than the physical wounds. And John, one night, on the, in the darkness, on the edge of his ship, was preparing to carry out a plan that he had hatched in humiliation and anger over this. He planned to steal into the captain's room, kill him, walk out, jump over the side of the ship, and kill himself. As he was preparing to do this, he would later write, I felt the mighty restraining hand of God, keeping me from fulfilling this purpose. He remained with the Royal Navy only as long as he had to and transferred to a ship known as the Pegasus, a slave ship bound for West Africa. John did not hit it off well with that crew either. Whether his laziness and his disruptive behavior turned the crew against him, or he had been, had the cards stacked against him by the report of being a deserter is not clear. But hate him, the crew did, so much so that they felt glad to part with his company when they reached the coast of West Africa, and they gave him to a slave captain. The slave captain, in turn, gave John to his wife, the Princess Peyi an African princess of Sierra Leone. The princess didn't treat him well. In fact, she abused him and treated him as worse than her own slaves. And for three long years, John would serve as a slave to slaves in the land of West Africa. At length, at the age of 21... His father, growing anxious for the welfare of his son, sent one of his fellow captains in search, and he found John and took him on board his own slave ship. Over the following years, John would serve as both a crew member and then as a captain of multiple slave ships 
traveling and carrying human cargo between West West Africa and the New World. He encountered multiple storms, and each time he would run into a storm, he would promise God, cry out to God, that he would live a reformed life if only God would save his life this one time. But repeatedly, he would not be able to deliver on this promise and would fall back into his old ways, cursing, swearing, living the life. He writes, I was governed by present appearances and looked no further. In time, his childhood faith changed into deism, and deism changed to atheism. He writes, The troubles and miseries were my own. I brought them upon myself by forsaking God's good and pleasant paths and choosing the way of transgressors, which I found very hard. They led to slavery contempt, famine, and despair. On one of his final voyages at the age of 29, John was returning from the New World and picked up in boredom more than anything else a book by Thomas Akempis known as The Imitation of Christ. As he read, he writes that he experienced an odd sensation, a feeling almost bordering on awe, and asked himself, could these things be true? During that final voyage, they did meet a violent storm off the coast of Ireland in which the hull of the ship was breached, and the ship began to sink, the hold filled with water, and John once again cried out to God for deliverance. He writes that the ship shifted suddenly, baggage moved in the hull, and stopped up the hole enough that they were able to flounder their way to the coast of Ireland. When he landed, John went directly to the nearest church, received the communion, and committed his life to Christ. Whether or not he planned to go back to sea is uncertain, but a terrible and sudden illness befell him at the age of 29. It's not clear exactly what that was. Some scholars believe it was a stroke. I was looking at an old painting of John Newton that shows a very mild droop in his left eyelid, suggestive of the residual effects of a stroke. Whatever it was, he recovered fully, but he would never return to the sea. He committed his life to Christ and purposed to become a minister of the gospel. But, without much of an education, it took him ten years to convince any church to ordain him as a minister. In the meantime, he worked as a tax collector in London and studied Hebrew, Greek, and Syriac. He was ordained a minister in 1764 by the influence of the second Earl of Dartmouth, a man by the name of William Leggy. This gentleman, incidentally, was the gentleman for whom my home institution was named in 1761. John Newton went on for the next and final 40 years of his life to labor with dedication 
for his churches, but there was a sense of unresolved guilt in his life, a sense of discord and a question of purpose. Much of this stemmed from a deep, gnawing sense of guilt. He would constantly recall the voices and the experiences of the slaves on the ships that he took to the New World. But as Newton grew older, he continued to study the character of God as revealed in Jesus. And it led him to what I would call a retrospective root cause analysis. He began digging down deep to the principles that had actuated his actions and God's actions over the course of his life. And as he did so, discord resolved to concord and inspired a fierce determination in his heart. In deep repentance at the age of 63, he would write thoughts upon a slave trade, an expose of his entire career as a slave master and shipper. He mailed this to every minister of parliament. In his old age, John Newton began to lose his eyesight. Slowly, gradually, it dropped away, and the world darkened perceptibly around him. But in the deepening darkness, John Newton found a radical resolution. Radical because he was motivated by principles greater than himself. Resolution because he was not only motivated, but felt a sense that the discord in his life was resolving into harmony and concord. In his final years, John would preach with an assistant just behind him and to his side, and the assistant had a long stick. Before him, he had his manuscript, and the assistant would follow along his progress, word by word, sentence by sentence. This helped John in his terrible eyesight. He could look up at the congregation and then look back down at his manuscript and see right where he was. And one day he was preaching, and he came to the line and he spoke it out. He said, Jesus Christ is precious. You can almost imagine the old man he was a bit plump. He wore a wig. His face was weather-beaten by many, many years on storms and at sea. I imagine that the old captain probably gripped his podium as if swaying on the deck of his ship. There was a pause after he said, Jesus Christ is precious. Perhaps he scanned the face of his congregation to try and see if there was any impact, and perhaps he was just trying to catch his breath. But then he said it again, Jesus Christ is precious. There was an imperceptible stiffening in the crowd. They wondered if the old preacher maybe had made a mistake. The young man behind him leaned forward and said, John, You've already said that. You can keep going. John turned slowly, I imagine, and looked directly at the young man standing behind him and said, 
I know I said it twice. And I mean to say it again. And turning back to his congregation, John Newton said, Jesus Christ is precious. Why was Jesus precious to John Newton? To understand that, we need to turn to the experience of another blind man. This blind man inhabits the text of Luke 18, 35. And I invite you to turn with me there to Luke 18, verse 35. Luke 18 and verse 35 says, And it came to pass that as he, that is Jesus, was come nigh to Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. This man, Mark tells us, was named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was blind. We don't know if it was congenital or acquired. But what we do know is that Bartimaeus's blindness had led him to a life of utter dependency. On his fellow man. He begged for a living. As he sat there in the dust, passers by may or may not have given him offerings of mercy. His position was compounded by the fact that people in his time believed that disease was a sign of God's specific judgment on specific people. It was the Passover season the memorial of the time when the children of Israel in Egypt had experienced God passing over them with mercy to spare their firstborn. Bartimaeus must have wondered, would God pass him over without mercy? Imagine Bartimaeus sitting blind Silent in the roadside dust as he contemplated this Passover season. Keep your finger in Luke. We'll come back to it, but turn to John eleven fifty-five. John eleven fifty-five says, And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. There was a great debate in the Jewish economy about Jesus. Who was he? What was his purpose? The people and priests alike wanted to see him at this Passover, but for different reasons. The people longed for a Messiah who would deliver them from the Romans. The priests longed for the blood of the man they saw as a cancerous usurper of their rightful authority. And in this context, we learn in the verses just preceding the story of Bartimaeus that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem knowing what would come upon him there, he purposed to go up. Luke 18, we turn back. Then he took unto him the twelve and said to them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked. 
and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. We skip back to verse 37. Bartimaeus sitting in the dust, wondering about the Passover, wondering what God's character was like. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth passes by. I'm sorry, I think my notes got out of order. Bartimaeus asked as this group was passing, what is this commotion? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth passes by. Suddenly, the silent man by the roadside finds his voice. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. I want you to notice the pivot Bartimaeus makes between Jesus of Nazareth, as announced to him, and Jesus, thou son of David. By contrast, we see in John chapter 7, verses 50, Nicodemus said to them, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, does our law judge any man before it hears him and know what he does? They answered and said to him, art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. And every man went into his own house. Here the Pharisees were convinced that Jesus of Nazareth could not be a prophet. And here blind Bartimaeus was convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was none other than Jesus, the son of David. What made the difference between Bartimaeus and the Pharisees? The heart's longing defines a watershed in understanding the character of Christ. If we long for dominion or for deliverance, it makes a very big difference. As he cried out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. The story continues in verse 39. They that went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace. This is a classic story of misdiagnosis and misapprehension of need. Bartimaeus was a beggar. He probably had a cup in his hand, and those in the vanguard of Jesus' group thought, don't bother Jesus with that, Bartimaeus. He's got more important things to do. He's not going to give you any coins anyways, sinner that you are. That misdiagnosis was based on an assumption of need. Do you and I do the same when a patient comes to us asking for pain meds? When a colleague comes to us telling us about this event or that event in their life and we're not listening for what's really behind what they're asking for. Bartimaeus asked for mercy. But Jesus listened. Jesus stood in verse 40 and commanded him to be brought to him. When he was come, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? Do you and I pause with our patients, stop along the roadside long enough to ask them, what is at the root of their cries for help? Bartimaeus replied, Lord, 
that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith has saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Bartimaeus' blind faith was not blind at all. It was a determined, relentless focus of his mind's eye on the character of Jesus Christ, the son of David. A focus that would not be rebuffed by the rebuke of those in Jesus' vanguard, but held fast to Jesus, the son of David. Where did this remarkable, transformative faith come from? Bartimaeus must have heard of the miracles of Jesus of Nazareth. And the hearing of that miracle history had convinced him that Jesus of Nazareth was Jesus, the son of David. The actions of Jesus ignited the faith of Bartimaeus. But we read in Isaiah 53 that there's a deeper significance to this transaction. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This text makes it clear that healing is a transactional transformation in which our sickness is transferred to Jesus and his health is transferred to us. Therefore, if Jesus said, thy faith has saved thee as the mechanism by which this healing was imparted, would not he also have meant my faith in exchange for your weakness has saved you? There is an important distinction between a faith in or about Jesus and the faith of Jesus. What happened to Bartimaeus? We wonder. We're only given a snapshot of his life. The faith of Jesus had transformed his life, and now where all had been darkness, light filled his life. But as somebody who sees lots of relapse, did he relapse or did he maintain his faith? Jesus continued to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem he kept the Passover in a way that was unique. We behold in the chapters of each gospel a rendition of Jesus in that final Passover week. It is filled with conflict. The Pharisees in anger seeking a way to kill him. The people 
hopeful that this will be the Messiah to bring dominion, and a few, like Mary, just seeking a deeper view of Jesus' face, looking for a Messiah of deliverance. We are led from the Last Supper to Gethsemane, and from Gethsemane through all of the horror surrounding the cross. Ellen White writes in her chapter, Calvary in Desire of Ages, chapter 78, as Jesus was falling under the weight of the cross, she writes, Since the Passover supper with his disciples, he had taken neither food nor drink. He had agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane in conflict with satanic agencies. He had endured the anguish of betrayal and had seen his disciples forsake him and flee. He had been taken to Annas, then to Caiaphas, and then to Pilate. From Pilate, he had been sent to Herod, and then sent again to Pilate. From insult to renewed insult, from mockery to mockery, twice tortured by the scourge. All that night, there had been a scene after scene of a character to try the soul of man to the uttermost. Christ had not failed. And yet, his trials continued. What do we learn from the faith of Jesus on the cross? In Luke 23, verse 33, we pick up Luke's version of the story. Luke 23, verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. We skip down to verse 44 of Luke 23, and it says, And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Like the darkness that John Newton felt in his extremity, like the darkness that Bartimaeus had experienced in his blindness. A darkness descended on Jesus at the cross, a darkness that was much more real, much more spiritual, much more discouraging. A darkness that separated from his view the presence of God and caused him to wonder, Is God still there? Is God still there for me? Will God pass me over without mercy? What do we learn from the faith of Jesus in this moment? If there's one thing you learned tonight, I'd encourage you to listen to this next statement from Ellen White. This is Desire of Ages, page 756. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his Father's acceptance heretofore given him. He was acquainted with the character of God. 
He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God, the sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was victor. The faith of Jesus was a personal, experiential understanding of the justice, the mercy, and the great love of God. This he must have desired to communicate to us as we read in his final prayer in John 17, verse 25 and 26. John 17, verse 25 says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus says, I have declared to them thy name by my life and work. And then he says, and will declare it. He must have meant that there was something about the cross that was specifically designed to reveal to each one of us the true, fundamental nature of God. Something about the cross that would make clear the faith of Jesus and its impartation to each and every one of us. In the Ministry of Healing, page 423, we read, The revelation of God's love to man centers on the cross. Its full significance tongue cannot utter, pen cannot portray, the mind of man cannot comprehend. Looking upon the cross of Calvary, we can only say, God so loved the world that he, begave, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. She goes on, the knowledge of God as revealed in Christ, is the knowledge that all who are saved must have. It is the knowledge that works transformation of character. This knowledge received will recreate the soul in the image of God. It will impart to the soul, to the whole being, a spiritual power that is divine. Faith, then, is recast as the experiential knowledge of God received in Christ. Yet knowing is different than doing, as each one of us can probably attest to. Jesus was now under the most extreme physiologic and emotional stress that any human being has ever known. The description of his death makes me wonder, and maybe Dr. Schwartz can back me up on this, whether or not he died of Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy, a stress-induced enlargement of the heart that likely led to a ventricular wall rupture. Jesus knew he was on the point of death. His faith, the reaching out and holding on to the character of God 
in the midst of the darkness had endured to this point. And yet, there was another action that Jesus did before he died. Luke 23, 46, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. This, I believe, is the rest of Jesus. The secret, in my opinion, of enduring faith. The finishing touch, if you will, on faith. There is a point to which faith in our humanity can endure. But our brains rely on glucose. And that supply is a limited supply. After a while, the faith, the focus on God, gradually corrupts itself into a version of, I'll just try a little harder. And that sets us up for total and complete failure. Rest is the antidote to that sort of fatigue, not a couch potato sort of rest, but an active commitment of our hearts and minds to the keeping of God. We read in Hebrews 4, a passage which I encourage all of you to consider deeply. Hebrews 4, verse 9 to 11. For sake of time, I won't explore the whole passage, though I would love to. It says in verse 9, There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest the rest of Jesus, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. On the Sabbath evening, Friday night, the beginning of the Sabbath, I think it behooves us to reflect that there's an untapped potential for behavioral change and behavioral maintenance in the Sabbath day rest. There seems to be a reciprocal relationship between faith and rest. Faith leads us to rest. In fact, rest cannot really be enjoyed without faith. And rest maintains that faith. Both find their source in the example of Jesus on the cross. They are, in reality, the faith of Jesus and the rest of Jesus, imparted to us as so to fix our eyes on his character. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says... Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest he be wearied and faint in your minds. We are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. All heavenly intelligences bend their mind at this point in the universe's history to examine, will God's character be replicated in his people? And all of those around us in the world who are struggling with the darkening specter of the world, the Syria of our world, are wondering about God's character. Is God there? And if he is, can he be trusted? Is he a God of love or a God of hate? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. John Newton Four days before Christmas, 1807. It was the year that the slave trade was abolished in Parliament. Lay dying in his bed. Now John was almost completely blind. He could at last say in the hymn he wrote entitled Faith's Review and Expectation." As a blind man, he could at last say, I once was blind, but now I see. As he lay there in his bed dying, Newton dictated to a friend the epitaph that he wished to have inscribed on his tombstone. The one phrase that would capture the essence of his life. And as he approached his final moments... He turned to his friend and whispered, My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. John Newton died later that day, likely bending the full weight of his attention on the phrase that he had repeated three times in that sermon. Jesus Christ is precious. He rested in that phrase and will rest until Jesus comes to raise him up at the last day. In the meanwhile, his tombstone reads, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Yes, John Newton, by faith, will continue to rest in Jesus. The question is, in the world's great darkness, what would you have your epitaph to read? Please bow your heads with me for prayer. Lord and Father, if your spirit has pricked us tonight, may it be unto repentance. 
And if we've experienced conviction, may it be for more than a weekend. Help us to fasten our eyes and focus on your character. May we behold your face by faith and commit our hearts to your keeping by rest. And may you work in our lives a radical resolution to live for you, to display your character to the world, and to prepare our hearts and minds and those of others for your soon coming. For we pray it would be soon. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.